Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So I want to follow up now on the history of Central Asia, which I already began, part one. And I want to pick up basically where I left off. So if you already heard that previous installment, I left off talking about the Mongol Empire in its sort of golden age in the 12 and 1300s before it began to break up and how it was such a, a rich and resplendent empire at the same time that it was very brutal and repressive. And the same sort of trends that I mentioned earlier continued through the rest of this sort of Mongol golden age, where Turkish language and customs continued to gradually spread, and most of the subjects of the empire, especially within Central Asia, became more Turkified over time. There was more settled farming, so you had more villages and towns developing based on agriculture, but the people were largely Turkish-speaking. And there was a continued spread of Islam. So together with the Turkification, there was Islamification. Now, this Mongol Empire, as I said, began to decline over the course of the 1300s. And it was broken into several pieces, each of which increasingly operated separately, right? They'd been created as sort of zones for the use of different sons and grandsons of Genghis Khan, and they began to move further and further apart politically through the 1300s. The main two sort of anchors, the two big uluses in the East and the West were China and the so-called Golden Horde. So in the east, in China, you had a Mongol dynasty, which took up the Chinese title of Yuan dynasty, of descendants of Kublai Khan, that ruled through most of the 1300s until falling from power in 1368. And the Yuan Empire was very rich and powerful and controlled most of Mongolia, Xinjiang, so huge swaths of Central Asia and the steppe lands, in addition to the traditional core of China. Meanwhile, in the West, most of the Mongol Empire was controlled by a government that most sources call the Golden Horde. Uh, and, you know, that may sound like kind of the awesomest name for a state ever, but it's a little bit of a mistranslation. So it wasn't simply a horde, it was an ordu, right? So that's where our word horde comes from, but it originally really means an encampment, right? A sort of moving tent city where usually the emperor or some sort of ruler and his court and generals and officials are sheltered. And this hoard was golden in the sense that gold or yellow was considered the royal and imperial color in much of Asia. It still is in China. So probably this hoard had some sort of golden tents or yurts in it or maybe yellow colored. And so calling it the golden hoard was simply a way of saying kind of the central uh, ruling hoard. And this golden horde regime ruled most of what's now Kazakhstan, European Russia, Ukraine, and a lot of Siberia. So it was a really expansive empire. 
And some of its rulers fairly early on adopted Islam, right, which hadn't been done before by Mongol khans or kings. And when these rulers converted and became Muslim, it further accelerated the spread, right? It added to the social prestige and social advantages of being Muslim. And so Islam began to spread to more Turks and Mongols and became more and more the common religion of this sort of blended Turco-Mongolic people, also called Tatars. But the Islam that these Tatars took up was also heavily blended with indigenous traditions of shamanism, right? Of things like going into shamanic trances, performing magical healing or divination. So it was the sort of religion that scholars today like to call syncretic or syncretism, right? This kind of intercombination. And even still to today, you can see Central Asian peoples doing things like inviting in a shaman to perform a healing ceremony, invoking spirits, and then concluding it by reciting lines of Arabic, maybe from the Quran, right? And so scholars would say, well, this was blended or syncretic, but to the people doing it, it was just what they knew and what they did. So the Golden Horde... Uh, ruled for several hundred years. It was long-lasting, but it was gradually weakened, right? As most of these steppe empires tend to be, there was factional infighting, uh, and it was weakened and effectively uh, really overthrown in all but name by rising powerful Slavic states, especially the Rus Slavic kingdom based in Moscow. So they were technically subjects and vassals of the Golden Horde. But by about 1500, they were really asserting themselves and undermining the Golden Horde so that they were really rulers in name only in a lot of their territory. So you have, as I said, China in the east, where the Mongol dynasty is powerful but lasts only to 1368. You have the Golden Horde in the west. And then in the south, in these areas that were traditionally called Bactria and in the mountains, the Pamir Mountains, the Hindu Kush, you have another Ulus that technically is called Shagatai and, and claims to have a, a Khan ruler tracing from Genghis Khan, but it's really the weakest and the most fragmented and unstable of all the zones of the Mongol Empire, and it really doesn't manage to hold together an effective government at all. And you have a lot of chaos and an, a, quickly a power vacuum already by the late 1300s. It's, it's an unstable power vacuum. So in this area, this mountainous area called Shagatai, a young bandit and livestock thief steps forward and takes advantage of this unstable power vacuum situation, and in a lot of ways follows in the same sort of footsteps as Genghis Khan. Uh, and this bandit's name is Timur, and he, like Genghis Khan, gathers together a small group of followers and compatriots around himself and leads them on sort of raiding adventures and expeditions. And they particularly steal a lot of livestock, which is, you know, a common custom for a lot of Central Asian people. So he steals livestock from his opponents and people he sees as dangers to the region. 
And he combines great brutality and ruthlessness towards his opponents with a sense of equality and generosity towards his followers, right? And he has a custom, for instance, of stealing livestock and then bringing it back and holding a big feast and sharing it out equally with his various supporters and comrades. So there's a lot of parallels here to Genghis Khan. And he quickly builds up his forces and defeats many enemies and creates an empire. And once he is effectively the real de facto ruler of much of this southern region, he becomes known as Timur the Lame. Okay, that's kind of like his unofficial title uh, because he had a limp in his right leg. Uh, and in Persian, that title is Timur Ilang. And in the West, he came to be known as Tamerlane, right? So you may have heard that name, Tamerlane. So Tamerlane builds up a large base of power in this southern mountainous area around Bactria. And then he sweeps northward onto the steppes and crosses the Oxus and controls most of the trans-Oxonian cities, okay? And once he has taken over these very wealthy, powerful cities of Transoxiana, he uses them then as a base to continue raiding outward and attacking and pillaging powerful kingdoms and cities far out in all directions. He goes all the way into Syria and attacks and raids Damascus. He goes south into India and attacks Delhi basically all the large civilizations. He becomes known as, as a kind of scourge of heaven, much as Genghis Khan was back in his time. So by the late 1300s, he's really known all around Eurasia, all the way from China to Europe, as this frightening and ruthless new power. And there's a lot that is contradictory about Tamerlane. Okay, Much like the Mongols, he's brutally violent, and he's known to slaughter large numbers of his enemies and leave behind stacked piles of skulls. But he also appreciates and celebrates art and literature of all of these different societies. And it seems that he would raid and pillage these cities like Damascus and Delhi and others, largely in order to take much of their great art and their best technology back with him to Central Asia. And he really lives, it seems, with one foot in the city, in settled urban civilization, and another foot on the nomadic steppes. Uh, he makes Samarkand in Sogdia into sort of his unofficial capital. He richly embellishes it, makes it into a sumptuous city of palaces and gardens and orchards, really a, a, a marvel of the world. But rather than sleeping and living permanently in these palaces he built, he preferred to sleep in a tent set up in a garden outside the palace. So you can see he's kind of constantly straddling the line between these two ways of life. And he was even more contradictory in another way in that he was a Muslim. Right? He embraced Islam and he used Islam as a major justification for his rule, for why he should have power. And Islam was presented in his empire as a religion of peace and harmony and civilization. But even as he did this, he openly flouted and broke all the rules of how an Islamic ruler was supposed to govern. The rules about nonviolence, about not attacking fellow Muslims, 
he broke all of those rules. And further, he continued to keep and support shamanic healers and advisors in the pre-Islamic Turkish traditions. So he was totally improper by all the traditional standards of Orthodox Muslims. So as I said, Tamerlane not only frightens but really captures the imagination of all kinds of peoples all around Eurasia, like the Chinese, the Arabs, the famous Arab historian Ibn Khaldun went to meet with Tamerlane in Damascus and interviewed him for weeks in order to write an elaborate biography. Also, Westerners, a Spanish ambassador, went to Tamerlane's court in Samarkand and also interviewed him and wrote a biographical sketch of him to get the information directly back uh, to Europe. And he was truly restless. He continued to raid and attack until finally he died of natural causes, miraculously enough. He died of natural causes in 1405 on his way eastward to raid and attack China. So Ming China was very lucky. They sort of dodged a bullet that Tamerlane died before he was able to get to them. And of course, his name has continued to be famous. You, you may have heard it. And that's partly because the first really successful play in the English theater, the first play that gained uh, serious recognition as a work of literature was Tamerlane the Great by Christopher Marlowe, which he wrote in 1587. And Marlowe was very interested in kind of larger-than-life, fanatical figures. And he portrayed Tamerlane as a kind of insatiable megalomaniac consumed with desire to conquer the world. Before dying, Marlowe's Tamerlane burns the Quran and declares himself greater than God. And, you know, it's doubtful that anything like that really happened. And it seems Tamerlane more than wanting to conquer the world. It was more that he wanted to take all the best things from the world, to have them in his kind of paradise in Samarkand. But this portrayal of of Tamerlane as turning atheist and trying to put himself above God at the end of his life was really shocking to Elizabethan English audiences. You know, it wasn't shocking that he was a Muslim or even that he was a, a conqueror and that he was violent, but more that he was atheist. And that made it a very controversial play. So Tamerlane himself came partly from Mongol ancestry, not from Genghis Khan, but he could trace his descent partly to to other Mongols. And he tried to legitimize himself as a Muslim ruler. And after he died, he made sure that the power of his throne was passed on to his sons. And a dynasty that historians called Timurid continued to rule in that southern zone, sort of from Transoxiana down through Bactria, through that Shagatai region, continued to rule through the 1400s, based mainly in Samarkand. And it continued to celebrate high culture and sponsored the creation of mosques, of many madrasas, or Islamic schools for teaching literature and history as well as Islam. They built an astronomical observatory in Samarkand. They sponsored poetry and poetic academies and so on. And also under their rule, there was a flourishing of the Sufis, these Muslim mystics, uh, sort of transcendental mystic teachers, 
who began to group themselves now into brotherhoods, into sort of organized clans, kind of like the monastic orders in Europe, who hosted open houses, lodges where people could visit and stay and study and meditate, right? Particularly the Nakshabendis became the biggest and most powerful Sufi order, and they, they continue to be important in the Islamic world to today. Now, this Timurid empire based in the south and in Samarkand also did not last, right? All of these different power centers in the east, the west, and the south all fell apart one by one and led into another period of sort of chaos and fragmentation. So in the east, the Yuan dynasty was overthrown in 1368, toppled by an indigenous Chinese rebellion called the Red Turban Rebellion. So this Red Turban rebel group ended the Yuan dynasty and created the Ming. Most of the Mongols that had settled in China then fled. You know, they had intermixed to some degree, but most of them didn't consider themselves safe, did not want to remain in China, and instead returned to Mongolia. And in the steppe of Mongolia, they started to regroup under a new leading ruling tribe called the Oirats. So that becomes the new kind of Mongol power center, separate from Ming China. In the West, the Golden Horde started to fall apart through the 1400s as it was overtaken by increasingly aggressive and effective Slavic opponents, particularly Russians. And in the far West, in areas we now consider Russia and Ukraine, some of the Muslim Turco-Mongolic people remained. They did not flee, but they stayed in place and maintained small chiefdoms and kingdoms, especially along the Volga and in the Crimea on the Black Sea. So these peoples came to be called the Volga Tatars and the Crimean Tatars, and they stayed and many have remained over the centuries, even as they ended up under Slavic Christian rule. However, in the sort of central and more eastern parts of the Golden Horde domains, people fled and moved eastward and southward down closer into Transoxiana, into those old Silk Road cities. And many of those Turco-Mongolic people, who were by this time mostly Muslim, regrouped and created a new kind of tribal union or a new khanate. And these people called themselves Uzbeks, right? So this is where the idea of, of the Uzbek people or ethnic group or nation begins. And these Uzbek people that, that had fled down into Transoxiana were more settled and agrarian. They were largely farming people. They were Muslim and set up a Muslim kingdom. And they were ruled by very powerful authoritarian rulers who were very militaristic and really ruled with an iron fist. And while most of the people were Turkish-speaking, they also adopted Persian as a language of high culture and politics and diplomacy. So you had a kind of sophisticated new state set up in in this area by the Uzbeks. Uh, And they sometimes clashed and struggled with the Oirats, with this sort of new ruling house of the Mongols, right? So you had 
Uzbeks kind of in the, in the center of Central Asia or a bit more to the west and Oirats to the east. And they met in battle and usually the Oirats won. So in the 1460s, because the Uzbek rulers were very militaristic and repressive, uh, many of their subjects became unhappy, you know, were used to more freedom of movement, more individual autonomy. And so many of them rebelled and then broke away and moved northward out onto the sort of wider open steppes. And those people called themselves free people or in their Turkic language, Kazakh. Right? So this is how you get Uzbeks in that sort of core Transoxiana area, and then north of them on the bigger, flatter, open steppes, Kazakhs. Okay. Meanwhile, to the south, below the Oxus River, the Timurids, as I said, were great supporters of culture, but they were really incompetent and ineffective as rulers. And politically and militarily, they lost control of those domains and were really rapidly falling apart by 1500. The last Timurid ruler, Babur, a, a Timurid prince in that area, was attacked and driven out by the Uzbeks in 1501. So this leader, Babur, had to flee southward, and he was able to conquer the town of Kabul, down in what's now Afghanistan, and then from there he invaded India and founded the Mughal dynasty of rulers in India. So you, you may have heard of the Mughals and uh, you know, Humayun and Akbar and all these famous rulers, and their root, they originally came from this Timurid line from Central Asia. But meanwhile, the domains that Babur left behind these sort of mountainous areas at the southern edge of Central Asia, below the Uzbek kingdom, really descended into tribal feuding and, and total chaos, right? They were balkanized. And over the course of the 1500s, in this kind of fragmented tribal mountain region, there was a growing division that opened up between sort of two sides, to the west and to the east. And in the western part, you had more uh, thoroughly Islamified, Muslim, and Persian-speaking peoples, right, who, who may have been largely Turco-Mongolic in their extraction, but who were more connected to Persia, who were more solidly Muslim. And those people came to be called Tajiks, which was just an old word for Muslims, right? While to the east, over in the areas of the, the Pamir and Tianshan Mountains, you had people who were still more shamanic, who were less solidly Muslim, where Islam had less of a hold. They were more shamanic, and they continued to be more nomadic. And they spoke more Turkish and Turkic languages rather than Persian. And those people were called Kyrgyz, right? They sort of inherited this old Turkish tribal name. So again, we have right in the middle, you have the Uzbek state. North of them, you have Kazakhs. And south of them, Tajiks and Kyrgyz. So this should start to sound kind of familiar, right? And these different groups became increasingly entrenched in their areas, right? Because either they were more farming, settled, sedentary people, or they were in these sort of mountain strongholds, right? And so you have the very rudimentary beginnings of something like the ethnic national map of Central Asia, okay? Now, all of these regions had continued to enjoy some degree of prosperity, either from Tamerlane's raiding and stealing or from trade and the Silk Road. 
but they began to experience more decline and loss of prosperity after 1550 or so. So in the western steppes region, this sort of area that I've been talking about of Kazakhs and Uzbeks and and Turkmen tribes, in that whole region kind of between the Caspian and Xinjiang, the people were mainly Turkic and Sunni Muslim, right? And they became increasingly hemmed in as very different and usually hostile governments start to spring up and surround them in all directions. So you have Christian Slavs taking over in Russia, all the way over to the rurals. Ivan the Terrible, a very effective and frightening Russian ruler, defeated the Volga Tatars and other groups in the 1550s and then went on to fortify the various frontiers around Russia and to continue attacking southward and eastward, particularly trying to disrupt and counter the slave trading raids, right? So there were many Tatars and other Central Asian peoples who engaged in a slave trade and would raid and kidnap Slavic people. And that's where our word slave comes from, right? From the enslavement of these Eastern Europeans. And so the Russians wanted to push back against those slave raids and started to fortify and extend their frontiers. They crossed the Urals and began colonizing Siberia in 1581. And they were helped along partly by gunpowder and even more so by smallpox. The fact that they were carrying, just like the Europeans who colonized the Americas, they were carrying pathogens that the local people had never been exposed to. And so large numbers of Siberian people died in outbreaks as the Russians rapidly advanced eastward into Asia. So Russian domains rapidly expanded. They eventually met up with Ming China, came to terms with China, and reached the Pacific by 1638. So they already had a a huge continent-wide empire by 1638. Also to the east, on the eastern ends of the steppes, the Mongols, increasingly many of their leaders and elites were resentful of the Oirats. And so the Khans, descendants of Genghis Khan, the sort of traditional elites, reasserted themselves and converted to Buddhism. And much like Tamerlane had used Islam to legitimate his rule, they embraced Buddhism and aligned themselves religiously and politically with Tibet. So these new Mongol rulers in the 15 and 1600s encouraged missionaries, Buddhist missionaries, especially from Tibet, to come up into the Mongol steppes. They officially conferred the title of Dalai Lama on the main Buddhist spiritual leader in Tibet in 1578. So this idea of a sort of single leader, kind of a pope of Tibetan Buddhism called the Dalai Lama, that actually comes from the Mongols. And they began building new monasteries all around the country, including one in the middle of Mongolia that then became the site of Ulaanbaatar, the, what's now the capital city of Mongolia. And it was founded in 1648. And older Central Asian traditions like shamanism and human and animal sacrifice that had been going on for thousands of years were suppressed by this new Buddhist regime. So some of the Oirat Mongols who had been kind of pushed out of power were dissatisfied and moved west. 
and some migrated into the area of Xinjiang and created a new kingdom there in Xinjiang. Others went further west all the way into Russia, and you still have descendants of these Oirat Mongols living around the Caucasus area in Russia. And in 1640, the different groups of Mongols, so the the sort of traditional Buddhist Mongols in the east and the Oirats in the west, came to terms and made agreements on a shared set of Mongol laws, part of which decreed that all of both kingdoms would support Buddhism and Buddhist temples and monasteries, and even that one-tenth of all the men in each family would become monks. Right, So this creates a gigantic monastic population all throughout these Mongol domains. So for the Muslim Turkic people that I've been talking about in the steppe lands and in Transoxiana, by about 1600, there are now unfriendly powers all around them. There are, as I said, the Christian uh, Russians in one direction, the Buddhist Mongols to the east, and a Shia government takes over in Persia. Right? The, the Safavid regime takes over in Persia, embraces Shia Islam, which is extremely hostile to the Sunni Turks, right? and basically freezes them out of trade and diplomacy and cuts them off from these crucial connections to the Islamic world and to India through Persia. So they're increasingly isolated and hemmed in by unfriendly powers in all directions. Their ability to range across the steppe to freely exploit herds, to trade across the old Silk Road routes is diminished and constrained. And in response, Europe takes a different policy. For decades now, the Europeans have had a harder and harder time getting goods from Asia through the Silk Road. Okay, there have been obstacles like Tamerlane and his raids and attacks, the chaos and isolation and fragmentation that followed after the breakdown of Tamerlane's empire. And this really pushes and encourages Europeans to search for an alternate route to Asia rather than relying on these caravan routes. And the European people who, as you might know, eventually make it and find a sea route to Asia are the Portuguese, right? So the Portuguese by 1500 sail all the way into the Indian Ocean and then up to India. And this saps, this starts to sap the demand for Chinese and other Asian goods in the Silk Road cities, right? So the steppe nomads suffer a great loss, right, of no longer being able to make nearly as much money off the east-west trade. However, this trade is partly replaced to some degree by new north-south trade, where they can act as middlemen between Russia to the north and India to the south. So there is a thriving trade in horses and cattle and other animals and also fruits like melons and human captives, right? This sort of uh, trade in captives and slaves that especially goes down into the Islamic world. But it's not nearly as thriving as it used to be. So all of these various powers and groupings I've been talking about all suffer decline and losses of influence through the 1600s. The only really significant power that manages to last and to hold on through these centuries is the Uzbek kingdom, right? Uh, And they continue to rule and control most of Transoxiana, including basically all of what was traditionally Sogdia, right? 
They are ruled by a series of effective leaders who are able to defeat Persia in battle and using this upper hand are able to establish trade, good trade relations with Russia and other surrounding countries. They defend effectively against attacks by the Mughals, right? So the Mughal dynasty ruling in India still, you know, is irredentist and wants to go back and retake control of those old Tamerlane territories, but the Uzbeks are able to block them. And new migrants at this time start to come in as well, right? Now that this this Uzbek Khanate is sort of the one center of power and prosperity in Central Asia, they become the recipient of migrants who want to come in and be involved in that trade, including some Jews, right? So Jews settle in these cities, particularly Bukhara, from Europe and Persia and the Middle East, and they become known eventually as Bukharan, right? Because that's the main sort of Jewish center in the area. But still, the Uzbek kingdom, little by little, by 1700, it is also sapped by internal intrigue, uh, factional fighting, especially among various powerful parties, including the Sufi orders, the noble aristocracy, and the generals. And partly because of this increasing feuding and disunity, they are defeated by a Persian invasion in 1740. So this old nemesis is finally able to inflict a defeat on them. And the Uzbek government is so weakened that it breaks apart into small sort of warlord Sufi states, statelets and chiefdoms ruled by ex-general, you know, military commanders advised by Sufi orders. Now, this defeat by Persia, it was only really a sign of things to come. And it was possible in large part because of a growing power imbalance from new technology. And that new technology principally was gunpowder. By this point, Central Asia is really falling behind in this age of gunpowder. So this technology of gunpowder had originated from China, and, and it had been adopted by the Mongols and other Central Asian powers. But as it developed and advanced, it started to shift power away from the steppe nomadic people. So early on, Chinese and Mongols experimented with small sort of flamethrowers and shrapnel shooters using gunpowder. That goes back at least to the 11th century. Tamerlane used some of these kind of primitive gunpowder weapons and also used some bored out tubes kind of primitive cannons that would fire projectiles, and that may have played some role in his conquests. But these sort of early primitive guns and cannons were not all that effective. They were not nearly as agile or fast or precise as an archer on horseback, right? It was still really much more effective just to have, uh, you know, a wave of fast-moving archers that can hit targets with skill. But by 1600, this was starting to shift. And many of the nomadic people were increasingly finding it difficult to charge and attack cities the way Tamerlane had done when those cities had better, stronger cannons and muskets, right? So better, more reliable handheld guns that could shoot long distances at charging cavalry. So there was a shift going on, much like what was happening at the same time in Europe, right, where knights on horseback really became obsolete and couldn't face off against cannon and units of musketeers 
And in the 1700s, those muskets are replaced by flintlock rifles, right, which are much better and are, are more effective at aiming, right? So th- at this point, the, the ability of nomadic peoples and simply of Central Asian traditional cavalry to win battles was declining. And this affected the cities as well, right? They were already suffering from loss of trade, and now nomadic allies that they might have depended on to control territory around them were losing their advantage, and many of the cities were becoming more isolated and poorer. There was a brain drain where a lot of talented leaders and administrators and scholars and diplomats were leaving these Central Asian cities and going especially to Mughal India, where there were better opportunities. And these nomadic societies, eventually, they were caught right in, you might say, the line of fire of new growing gunpowder empires, especially Russia and China. Right? So these, these had always been powers for a long time, but now with better gunpowder weapons, they could really tear through the steppe people's opposition even faster than before. So you might say, well, the Central Asian people could have also adopted gunpowder and tried to match them in this arms race, but it was very, very difficult to do that even when they tried. For example, the Oirat group that had set up a kingdom in Xinjiang that I mentioned earlier. In the 1600s, they grew this kingdom, which was called Jongaria, and it became fairly powerful. And one particular leader, Galdan, recognized that he had to catch up and modernize both uh, politically and technologically. He created a sophisticated government with money coinage and tax collection and a professional governing class, and he built up a firearm industry so that Jongaria could produce its own modern weapons. And he attracted many European and Chinese technicians. So he tried to create an effective, uh, strong state and diplomatically to play off Russia and China against each other, to sort of hold them off. But his kingdom was simply crushed by a massive Chinese invasion and a gigantic army in 1696, right? So these countries like China that had already moved forward in terms of power and technology saw a new state like Jongaria as a threat that they had to nip in the bud, right? So they used their better military and their much bigger numbers to just flood in and crush Jongaria, right? And this you could see as kind of a, a warning shot, right, of what would happen to some of these steppe peoples if they tried to build up their power in the face of the gunpowder revolution. Once Jongaria was eliminated, some other Turkic peoples further west, such as the Kyrgyz, tried to stop this Chinese advance, but they also then were attacked and defeated. And so the new Qing government in China after 1700, moved in, fortified, and annexed areas like Kashgar that had been Kyrgyz, but have since then been under Chinese control. And they they annexed this in 1757. And this is sort of the completion of Chinese conquest and annexation of the territory we basically see now. To the northwest, the Oirat peoples 
also came under attack and were pushed westward and had to flee from rising Chinese power with this gunpowder technology. And in the 1710s, much of these Oirats and other Mongol groups were forced westward across the steppes and began attacking the Kazakh people in the 1720s. So this was a, a huge disaster for the Kazakhs, right? That they, they were a kind of smaller, more thinly populated group on the steppes, were not as, uh, did not have as much wealth or power or defensible positions like the Uzbeks did. And they came under, you know, blistering attack by the Oirats. And in response, they were basically forced to turn to Russia for protection. So they went to this other great power, to the north and west, to the Russians, and made a series of agreements and deals with them in the 1730s. And Russia basically took advantage of this situation to exert more and more power. And the Kazakhs basically fell under Russian domination. In the 1740s and 50s, Russia created a series of fortresses along the steppes, right, guarded by cannon, and more or less became the real de facto ruling government in most of what's now Kazakhstan, right? And their hope was to continue advancing southward and to eventually conquer Transoxiana uh, and the Uzbeks. Uh, and this was so important to them politically that they, they really didn't allow the Kazakhs anything but, you know, fake nominal control over their own affairs. They began interfering and choosing the Khans of the Kazakhs and running basically a puppet state. And this generated a lot of resentment among the Kazakh people, especially since, you know, they had gone there in the first place to try to be free of Uzbek control. And now they really resented these elites who had allowed themselves to become puppets controlled by Russia. And so in the 1770s, when there was a large uprising in Russia, the Pugachev Rebellion, that tried to overthrow Catherine the Great, the Kazakhs joined in this rebellion and turned against their own elite leaders. Right? But this rebellion was put down by Catherine the Great's government. And she tried to sort of change the character and the texture of the Kazakh peoples, of the steppe peoples, largely through religion. So after the end of the rebellion, she starts sending Tatar Muslims who were Russian subjects and who had adopted a lot of Russian customs and language and were more loyal to the Tsarist regime. She sends them into the Kazakh steppes to preach a sort of reformed Orthodox Islam against the sort of folk, blended folk Islam that was common in Central Asia. And she seems to believe that if she can convert them to this more sort of orthodox, correct Islam, then they will become more civilized, more settled. They'll become more controllable subjects like the Volga Tatars. And that eventually she can civilize them and convert them to Christianity. Right? So you see this notion uh, that starts from from Catherine and other Russian officials that sort of correct Orthodox Islam is a step towards Christianization. Okay, so around, if we look at Central Asia around 1800, and particularly this core area of Transoxiana, you have by 1800 many small competing Uzbek khanates and cities. Many of them are stagnant or declining. 
they have madrasas that were traditional centers of learning and literacy, but they had really become isolated, outdated, uh, teaching only sort of rote memorization. They have lost contact with the more worldly, cosmopolitan Islamic world. And these small statelets are often played off against one another. They're manipulated by surrounding greater powers like Russia and China, and now also increasingly Britain and the United States, who have connections into Central Asia through India, right, through British India. And so Central Asia becomes the main grounds for mostly a British versus Russian rivalry, which people at the time called the Great Game. And you can see this kind of British Russian proxy contest for power in Central Asia as almost a kind of forerunner of the Cold War. And it seems some of the leaders at this time were intelligent and knowledgeable and really tried to protect and advance their, the interests of their small states, but they were at a huge disadvantage now against these mostly European powers. The sort of one city-state that hung on in Transoxiana, and that did prosper to some degree, was Bukhara. And Bukhara, it seems, benefited from a lot of the small wars and skirmishes among the Central Asian states because they had a slave market and they gathered up captives to sell in this slave trade, right? So that's how they turned it to their advantage. Meanwhile, further to the south, in those mountainous areas I was talking about, there are various fragmented tribal groups, sometimes feuding with each other, but a large number of them, encouraged by the British, actually band together and form a new state. So various Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Mongols down in that area of Bactria and southward join together to form Afghanistan which is, you know, partly an indigenous state, but also was partly created under British influence as a sort of British puppet and as a buffer protecting India from possible advance through Central Asia, right? It's a sort of buffer state protecting the jewel in the crown, which is British India, particularly against the advancing power and influence of the Russians. So this sort of great game situation continues on for several decades. But then starting in 1822, Russia sort of throws out the old rule book and starts simply advancing directly and annexing territory. So between 1822 and 48, Russia repeatedly uh, attacks the Kazakh lands and annexes all of those central steppe areas, this huge territory that we now call Kazakhstan. Over the course of the 1850s and 60s, they have to fight to suppress several rebellions, especially ones that were sponsored in some way by the Transoxonian cities and by the British. And so they continued invading southward and occupied one Central Asian city after another, first Tashkent, then not long after Bukhara. And they reduce these countries to sort of vassal puppet states, right, controlled by Russia. And finally, they capture Merv, a sort of final small Turkmen city, you know, in the sort of area of nomadic Turkmen people near the Caspian City. And they, they capture this city in 1884. And so this kind of completes the Russian conquest of all of Central Asia down to the borders of Afghanistan. So they stop at the borders of 
Persia and Afghanistan, basically to avoid too openly provoking the British. So once this conquest is complete, Russia now controls a population of about 20 million Muslim subjects. Right? So this is now a large chunk of their empire. And thousands of Jews and Eastern Christians and Zoroastrians and people of different religions interspersed in this Muslim region. For a while, they continue to rule mostly indirectly, right? They make alliances, particularly with conservative authoritarian elites in these various cities, right? People who were committed to old social hierarchies and to Orthodox Islam, and they use them as kind of proxy rulers. Meanwhile, at the same time, the Russian government hopes that Islam will sort of wither away without state support. Right? As they see it, Islam is only there because these old repressive oriental rulers were propping it up. And without that support, especially among the nomads, people will leave Islam and hopefully become civilized and Christian. Right? Now, this does not happen. You know, maybe not surprising. This is wishful thinking. And in some places, especially among the Kazakhs, really the opposite happens. As people are resentful, of Russian control, they embrace Islam even more. And around this same period, if we look at Xinjiang, which is under Chinese control now, right? The Qing also rule over the Turkic peoples in Xinjiang, mostly indirectly, and try to cut off the whole region from Russian or British influence, right? It's about kind of using Xinjiang both as a province and again, as a kind of buffer against those rival powers of Britain and Russia. There are several waves of revolts and rebellions, mainly of Muslims, against Chinese rule from the 1850s through the 1880s. Right? So this is a pattern over and over again of people rebelling against these foreign imperial powers. And naturally, they seek out allies and supporters, particularly Russia. Right? And briefly, in the 1870s, Turkic rebels are able to set up an independent state in Xinjiang, sort of supported and propped up by Russia. But this state is then quickly crushed again by the Chinese Qing government and put under direct rule of China, right? And it becomes a, a province of China in 1884, right? So again, same year that the Russians took the last remaining Central Asian cities in the West. And the Chinese government begins to move Han Chinese westward into Xinjiang and also northward into Inner Mongolia, into the nearer parts of Mongolia, trying to kind of Chinese-size or Sinicize these Central Asian territories. And this also sets a pattern, right? Russia does similar things, trying to modernize and kind of Europeanize their new territories. So Many thousands of Europeans, mostly Russians, are moved in. It starts with a sort of elite of bureaucrats, scientists, uh, you know, minor officials to kind of run these new provinces and to try to study and categorize the natives, right? Many of them had this kind of scientific attitude that we are, we have to sort of study and classify these native peoples much like they did the flora and fauna. Right? It's a very imperial mindset. Right? But it was really impossible to capture the very complex overlapping identities of these people, right? the different religions and the different tribes and clans. It was sort of uh, you know, too complex for these outsiders 
to put on paper, you could say. And from the 1890s onward, the Russians made more and more effort to simply colonize the steppes and try to overwhelm the indigenous people with European Russians. So over a million Russian subjects were moved into just Kazakhstan alone between 1896 and 1916. These newcomers were given all sorts of special powers and the land began to be enclosed and parceled out and about a fifth of the land was given to these Russian colonizers. Open grazing, right, the traditional mode of supporting animal herds by moving across the steppes, became impossible. And the government tried to force people to settle and become sedentary farmers and pay taxes, right? So, you know, much like the U.S. did with Native Americans around the same time. They wanted to try to make these people into useful tax-paying subjects. And most particularly, there was a huge demand in Russia for cotton, right? So Central Asia was turned pretty quickly into something like a giant cotton plantation, right? So cotton was highly valuable, and the main sources of cotton were the American South and also Egypt and India, which were controlled by Britain. So the Russians wanted a supply of cotton that they didn't have to buy from these rival powers in the U.S., and the British Empire. So they really put huge resources into pressuring people into producing cotton. And after 1900, there's a quick arrival of railroads, of new industries, right, cotton processing, there's urban growth, and especially cities like Tashkent grow much bigger as they become meeting points, terminuses between the Central Asian cotton growing world and Russia. So how did people react to this rapid change? Well, not surprisingly, there was a lot of resentment of Russia, a lot of resentment towards these Russian settlers coming in. And there was a great fear, sort of when it comes to traditions and beliefs, there was a fear of being cut off and isolated from the rest of the Islamic world and of losing that traditional faith. And partly in response to that, there was, after 1900, a rise in so-called Salafi Islamic fundamentalism, right? So a movement within the Muslim community that rejected modern innovations and tried to sort of recreate a, a purified Islam like that of Muhammad's original compatriots. But at the same time, there also was, you might say, a kind of third way, a so-called Jadid movement, which was... A, a Muslim Asian reform movement that was led and inspired mainly by modern Russian-speaking Tatar people who moved into the area from the Volga Tatar and Crimean Tatar communities in Russia. And this Jadid movement promoted adherence to Islam, right, and also to Turkish traditions and identity. It was pan-Turkish, right, promoted uh, unity and a sort of shared solidarity among Turkic peoples. And it founded schools that were separate from the madrasas, right, and that would teach secular learning and modern worldly knowledge and modern writing systems and such, uh, apart from what they saw as the kind of overly traditional madrasas and mosques. And they also created schools for girls and educated many uh, women as well as men. Many of the graduates of these Jadid schools became Turkish nationalists. 
and also in many instances sort of liberal reformers calling for freedom of religion, civic equality, and so on. And a lot of these new sort of liberal nationalist reformers celebrated the 1905 revolution in Russia, right? So in 1905, Russia was humiliated by their defeat by Japan, by a new rising Asian power. And many of these Turco-Mongolic people felt this was a good sign of of Asian people, of non-Europeans asserting themselves and coming into their place in the world, and they wanted to take advantage of the revolution that followed, and they were able to get representatives of the Central Asian peoples elected into the Duma, into this new sort of uh, figurehead parliament that was set up, and they held a series of pan-Turkish congresses, right, much like you saw in India and other colonized countries, uh, these reformers hold a series of, of summits or congresses. But there was a lot of division, right? There was not consensus. There were many divides among these peoples, you know, divides of, of language and ethnicity, of course, and also over what would their demands be. Did they simply want new civic freedoms like freedom of religion and inclusion as equal subjects of Russia? Or did they want group representation, their own sort of parliaments? Did they want uh, permanent representatives in the Russian government? Or did they want autonomy or even total independence from Russia, right? This, these were all sort of on the menu and there was a lot of disagreement and confusion. But during World War I, the Russian government uh, imposed a labor draft on Central Asia, forcing these Turkic peoples to to give labor in this seemingly, you know, endless futile war with the Germans. And this provoked a massive revolt. But even as this rebellion was able to gain a certain degree of power in some parts of Central Asia, it again broke up in confusion, especially in response to the 1917 revolution and the Bolshevik takeover. Uh, many of these Turkic leaders didn't know how to respond or what to think about the Bolshevik uh, revolution. And many switched sides during the ensuing civil war between the Bolsheviks and the so-called white uh, reactionaries. They didn't know which way to go, what would be more beneficial to the Central Asian people. And the ongoing civil war that dragged on into the early 20s caused terrible devastation and led to famine, especially in Kazakhstan, right, which keeps being caught over and over again, right, in kind of the line of fire. However, there were Tatar Bolsheviks, right, Muslim Tatars from Russia who joined the Bolshevik party. And one in particular named Galiev argued that the Muslims were an oppressed people, right? That they were oppressed by the Russian imperial state, much like the workers and peasants were, and hence they ought to join the red side and gain freedom and autonomy, liberation, for the Muslim Turks. And this really carried the day, especially as it appeared more and more that the Bolsheviks were going to win. So in 1918, the Turkic leaders who supported the Bolsheviks joined together and, uh, in cooperation with this new Bolshevik regime, created the Turkestan Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. Okay, so all of that Central Asian zone controlled by Russia becomes, at least in theory, an autonomous republic 
but really quickly became simply a puppet state controlled by the Bolsheviks. So as for the Soviet era, this is really the beginning of, of the Soviet era in Central Asia. And over the course of the 1920s, this new Turkestan Autonomous SSR is broken up into pieces and subunits, right? The Bolshevik government feels sort of threatened by this new, you know, possible rival base of power to the south. And so they start splitting it up into two zones that they call Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan, which is sort of the broad catch-all area for the kind of nomadic peoples from the Caspian Sea down into the mountains. And eventually Uzbekistan is broken up further and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are split off finally from Uzbekistan. So by the end of the 1930s, Central Asia has been split up into these various Soviet socialist republics. And technically, you know, although we use the word stan, which is an old Persian word for country. Technically, under Soviet rule, they were called Kazakh SSR and Uzbek SSR and so forth. And these divisions that the Soviets imposed were really artificial, right? It was impossible to draw effective lines separating these different groups. They were all so intertwined, and they had so much in terms of language and customs and religion in common. And trying to split them up was really like trying to divide a tapestry into pieces without cutting any threads, right? It was impossible. And so the Soviets simply kind of drew these lines on the map, pretended that everyone in those zones were homogeneous and could be referred to as nations, and then just erased the existence of all kinds of smaller tribes and groups, right? Which were just taken off the census and no longer acknowledged as existing, right? So really, ironically, it was the Soviet regime that kind of created a set of nation states in, in an area of the world where that had never been tried before. So formalistically, these various SSRs were supposed to be autonomous and equal to Russia, but really, ineffectively, they were controlled from Moscow, right? Again, they were just puppet states. And the Russian government even further invented sort of cultures and histories to underpin these largely artificial identity groups that they tried to create. They sort of invent a mythic history for Kyrgyzstan by merging together different stories and, and artworks that had previously been separate, right? It, it was this kind of artificial nation-building project. And as much as possible, they tried to suppress the identities of Turkish and Muslim, right? Because those were overarching, unifying uh, points of identity. So they suppressed... The, the notions of being Turkish or Muslim. They imposed the Cyrillic alphabet in large part in order to cut people off from the literature, the newspapers of the Islamic world. And ironically, the Tatar Bolsheviks like Galiev that had advocated for the Central Asian people to join the Bolsheviks were purged and sent to gulags, right? And Galiev most likely uh, died in, in a gulag. In the 1930s, these steppe lands were largely enclosed, right, and collectivized, made into large collective farms and plantations. There was a terrible loss of productivity, right? The, the ranging that produced food from animal herds was impossible. People were pressured to produce cotton instead. So there was a terrible loss of food production and famines, especially, again, in Kazakhstan. And... 
large areas of land were brought into cotton cultivation through intensive irrigation and heavy use of artificial fertilizers, right? Because cotton needs fertile soil and, and a certain amount of rainfall, which didn't really exist in most of Central Asia. So there was some resistance to these moves imposed uh, by the Soviet Union, especially among intellectuals. Uh, and many of them tried to kind of reconstruct an older and fuller sense of being Central Asian. And a great example is the great Uzbek poet Cholpan, who has been considered the sort of leading light, the literary hero of Uzbekistan. And Cholpan wrote poetry about Uzbekistan that drew intentionally on the intermixture of different civilizations, on the Chinese poetry and traditions, and Indian and Persian and so on, and tried to celebrate Uzbekistan as a sort of meeting place of societies. So his sense of, of being Uzbek really crossed boundaries and limits that had been imposed by the Soviets that tried to carve Central Asia into these smaller controllable units. And again, he celebrated exchange and cosmopolitanism. He translated Russian works like Pushkin into Uzbek and also Shakespeare made the first translations of Shakespeare into, into Uzbek. And not surprisingly, he was purged in 1938. Right? So there was this ongoing suppression of the intellectual life during World War II, there was very tight control from Moscow, right? The, the Soviets knew that they were against the ropes trying to fight the Nazis, and they kept tight control to keep those crucial raw materials coming from Central Asia. And the Soviets also came to see the Crimean Tatars as a threat, right? Because they were all the way over in what's now Ukraine. They were close to the war front. Uh, the Soviets feared that they might be a disloyal element, and so most of the Crimean Tatars were forcibly deported out of Ukraine to Uzbekistan, and a lot of their descendants are still there in the area of Uzbekistan. So after the end of the war, there was some improvement of conditions, both economically and politically. There was some economic prosperity, right, and then some improved living standards, from the flourishing production both of cotton and of minerals and petroleum, uh, cities grew and became more prosperous. And also indigenous local leaders were allowed more power and were given better positions in the governments of the SSRs. And there was more leeway allowed in speech and religion, right? First under Khrushchev, following Stalin, and then later also in the Glasnost period, right, under Gorbachev. So there's a sort of uh, loosening of restraints. But at the same time, when it came to the industries, uh, the Central Asia was really treated very, very poorly in a way that wasn't always visible. It became a kind of dumping ground, and some current scholars have called them, quote, trash canistans, not because there's anything inherently wrong with them, but because that's how the Soviets treated them as trash canistans, a sort of place to shunt off dangerous or polluting industries that they didn't want to deal with in Russia. So there was a gigantic nuclear testing site at Semipalatinsk, in the Kazakh SSR from 1949 to 89. And this was the main place where Soviets tested nuclear weapons. There were a series of 456 nuclear detonations of various kinds in this area. 
and it took up about 7,000 square miles, okay, an area the size of Wales was cut off from the use of farmers and herders and devoted instead to to nuclear, basically the <laughs> production and dumping of nuclear waste, right? There also were bioweapons laboratories. For, ants, for example, a very dangerous bioweapons lab was set up on an island in the Aral Sea, that inland sea in between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And in 1971, smallpox was leaked from this site onto a ship and got to a town on shore where it infected 10 people and killed three people before it was contained. And also more broadly, the cotton growing took an enormous environmental toll, right? The fertilizer chemicals were toxic. They got into the soil and the groundwater and caused terrible birth defects in many parts of Central Asia. And the intensive irrigation, right? There's only so much rainfall in Central Asia, and the irrigation diverted water out of lakes and rivers, some of which began to simply dry up. And this process really culminated in a horrifying way with the almost complete disappearance of the Aral Sea, right? So that big inland sea that you used to see on the map between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan almost completely disappeared except for a small sliver by 2014, right? Because the rivers and streams flowing into it had been totally destroyed by cotton cultivation. And you know, because of new policies in those countries, it started to come back a little bit. But the huge fishing industry, the shipping industry that used to fuel towns on the shores of the Aral Sea is gone. And you can see these very eerie images of fishing boats and ships just lying in the sand where the sea has disappeared. So as you probably know, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990 to 91. Uh, and the Communist Party was abolished. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, some people emigrated, right? People who were now finally free to leave went to Europe or the United States or other countries, especially small minorities like Bukharan Jews. And most of the Jewish people went to the United States. And if you go to Queens, New York today, there's a whole zone around Forest Hills and Rigo Park that is largely Central Asian Jewish, and you have Central Asian synagogues and restaurants and so on. But these various SSRs set themselves up as new independent states, and basically small elites of Communist Party members, government officials, Soviet officials, and businessmen kind of seized control and set up these new puppet governments controlled by this new ruling class, right? And this class wanted to, for one thing, take advantage of the economic opportunities, of the money that can be made from transport and from cotton and from exploiting mineral resources and oil and gas, much of which hadn't yet been explored. And they quickly open up and do business and also take a lot of bribes and make a lot of corrupt bargains, especially with Russian, American, and Chinese foreign firms. And they suppress political opposition and dissent. And part of their justification is that they want to prevent the danger of a Muslim fundamentalist takeover, right? There's sort of been this base of opposition under the surface all through the Soviet era, which is rooted very much in 
the mosques and the madrasas, right? And some of them are quite radicalized. So these new governments who set themselves up argue that they have to keep, they have to suppress dissent and control the political process to prevent Islamic fundamentalist takeovers. So perhaps most remarkably, Turkmenistan comes under the dictatorship of a man named Niyazov, who renamed himself Turkmenbashi, which basically means the, the leader or head of the Turkmens. And he ruled as a dictator until his death in 2006, and was quickly replaced by another dictator named Berdi Muhammadov, who built up another kind of cult of personality around himself, a lot like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, you know, showing off how he wins every sporting contest and he's the best writer and the best musician. And so he's been ruling with this sort of cult of personality. And actually just recently, his government had to put out a video of him doing various activities to try to tamp down rumors that he's actually dead. He hasn't been seen in public in many weeks and suspicions are growing that he's, he's actually dead. So Turkmenistan is an extreme case. If you go to further east in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, both of those countries have been under sort of faked, rigged democratic governments, right, where a single-party machine really controls every level of the political process. Kazakhstan has been somewhat more stable and peaceful and allowed a little more freedom in the political realm, but not very much. Uh, Tajikistan actually fell into a civil war in the 1990s between Islamic fundamentalists on the one hand and liberal democratic reformers on the other. And after the end of this civil war, really the the whole public realm was clamped down on. Right? Uh, similarly, in Uzbekistan, you have a very repressive government created by a dictator who was ironically called Islam Karimov, because his government and, and the Uzbek dictatorship after him was the most extreme in suppressing Islam, right? Kind of like Turkey earlier in the 20th century. They really tried to suppress even the appearance of Islam in the country. And this arguably really provoked Muslim fundamentalist groups, right? When you suppress both political opposition and democracy and eliminate sort of liberal reformists and you suppress Islam, you sort of push people into the one remaining holdout of possible resistance, and that is Islamic fundamentalism. And many of these sort of extremist madrasas, uh, Salafi and Jihadi, have been funded and supported by the Saudis, right, who, who see this as a possible... Uh, in for their own power into Central Asia. And finally, Kyrgyzstan has been under a series of repressive presidents, right? There, Kyrgyzstan for a while was seen as kind of an island of democracy uh, that actually did have greater participation and civic freedom than the other stands, but they were caught up in greater and greater corruption and manipulation by Russia and China and the United States. Uh, and presidents became more and more repressive, trying to head off possible dissent and consequences for their corruption. And so there were two popular revolutions in Kyrgyzstan, the so-called Tulip Revolution in 2005 and the Melon Revolution in 2010, which tried to kind of replace these corrupt uh, presidents and, and clean up government. But the new presidents since then have fallen back into the same patterns, right? Uh, so 
The Mellon Revolution did result in a new constitutional referendum, a new constitution being adopted, a new government and parliament being elected. But recently, the presidents have again used imprisonment, uh, suppression of, of opposition press, and this sort of island of democracy has really been swamped again. So you can see there's a pattern here where there is still so much that's desirable and lucrative about Central Asia that it's almost impossible for people who haven't had democratic institutions, who don't have long-standing organizations and parties, to rein in the corruption as the government and ruling class kind of cash in. And the same basic pattern seems to be happening now increasingly in Mongolia. So if we go all the way to the east and look at Mongolia, uh, they were under this kind of traditional Khan ruling class, right, in the 1800s. And then in the early 1900s, they became increasingly caught and pushed and pulled between China and Russia, right? And China tried to exert more and more direct power over Mongolia, as they had done in Xinjiang. So the traditional leadership turned again to Russia for an alliance and for support against China. Uh, and particularly after the Chinese Revolution in 1911, when this new nationalist party seizes power in China, the Mongol leadership uh, really turns to Russia and feels they need their support against this possible aggressive new Chinese government. So their government increasingly depends on Russia for its power and becomes more and more of a, a Russian-controlled kind of puppet state. And in 1924, there was a communist coup in which a you know, Soviet-backed communist party seized power and turned Mongolia into a Soviet-aligned socialist republic, basically a satellite state of the Soviet Union, much like you saw the same process happening in Eastern Europe, later in, in Poland and, and Hungary and East Germany. That, Mongolia was kind of the forerunner of that. And they continued under this regime until 1990 when there was a peaceful revolution and a democratic government was set up, right? As basically as effectively as happened in any Eastern European country, the Mongolians set up a new constitutional democracy. But there was very extensive corruption and police brutality and suppression of opposition parties. And there were fights over land use, especially controversies over allowing foreign corporations to mine in grazing lands, uh, disrupting people's ability to graze their animals and polluting and sometimes even mining and desecrating what they considered sacred lands, right? Those uh, regions around the Orkhon River, right? So there were massive protests in the capital, in Ulaanbaatar, and the, these especially culminated a few years ago following the release of the Panama Papers, which exposed very extensive tax evasion and money laundering by the Mongolian governing elite. And so there's been growing opposition and frequent protests. And just this year, the Mongolian parliament, fearing this rising tide of dissent, they passed bills suppressing the independent court system and abolishing the anti-corruption investigative agency. Right? So, so Mongolia may be you know, heading right into that same direction we see in the, in the Turkic countries to the west. Right? So in general, if we look at these newly independent, supposedly democratic states, right, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Mongolia, 
There's very little cooperation among them. There's a great deal of friction and feuding between them. And a lot of this you can see is the lasting effect of Soviet policy, which was to divide and conquer, right? To turn these different groups uh, against each other. Some people have nostalgia for the Soviet period, like you see in Russia, right? Uh, a sort of desire among some older people to return to the greater degree of prosperity and stability that you saw under the Soviet government. But also, there's a lot of anxiety, particularly among younger people, anxiety and nostalgia for lost cultural traditions, for this heritage that goes back to before the Soviet era. Right? And for most of these people, that's Islamic. Okay, In countries like Uzbekistan, that, that means trying to hold on to this connection to traditional Islam. In some places, especially in Kyrgyzstan, it is go it goes back even further, right? Kyrgyzstan was never as thoroughly Islamized. And instead, it goes back to the older Tengri beliefs and the ancient uh, shamanic traditions and the ancient Kyrgyz epics, uh, which were recited by bards. And some people today feel that uh, those traditions have been stamped out both by Russians and by modernization. So there's a lot of cultural anxiety there, you could say. And there's a geopolitical realignment that's happening, right? R Russia has tried to hang on to influence and to kind of maintain Central Asia in its sphere of influence, even as the Soviet Union is gone, right? But this influence really is slipping, right? They can't, they can't really treat it as their backyard anymore. And for instance, after 9-11, when the U.S. wanted to invade Afghanistan, Putin reportedly called up the governments of these different Central Asian states and urged them not to cooperate with the United States, right? They didn't want to see these countries fall under American influence as opposed to Russian, but it failed, right? The, the agreements were made and the U.S. was able to use countries north of Afghanistan as bases of operations. But this didn't really put these countries into the American sphere, right? Rather, there's another power vacuum, okay? A lot like we've seen over and over again all through this history. There's fragmentation, there's instability, and there's a power vacuum. And who now naturally wants to step in and take advantage of that power vacuum? China, right? The, the one other major power still there on the doorstep of Central Asia. So China has tried to kind of take advantage of this open field of weak states, of Russian decline. And the crucial linchpin for their doing that is, of course, Xinjiang, this massive steppe and desert region that is claimed and controlled by China, and that lies right in the middle in between Mongolia and the Central Asian stands, right? So if we look at Xinjiang, Xinjiang in the early 1900s, much like the Central Asian countries under Russian control, Xinjiang also had a national reform and independence movement, right? And they were able to declare independence and set up a so-called Republic of East Turkestan in the 1940s, right? When China was distracted fighting against Japan in World War II, these activist reformers set up the Independent Republic of East Turkestan. But then after the communists took over in 1949, they quickly moved in and crushed this independent state and annexed Xinjiang once again into communist China. 
and they began to move in millions of Han Chinese, the main sort of predominant ethnic group in the main body of China. They start moving millions of Han Chinese into Xinjiang, much like the Russians had done into the SSRs, but even on a larger scale. So that by today, almost half the population of Xinjiang is Han Chinese. Okay. And China, again, like the Russians, they suppress and stamp out sort of secular liberal reformist resistance, right? Any sort of parties, any new political organizations, brotherhoods are brutally suppressed. And so people who are dissatisfied with Chinese rule, who are or resentful of Chinese control, are driven more into Islamic fundamentalism, right? That become, becomes the main avenue of opposition. And Xinjiang in recent years has been under extreme repression and surveillance, even probably at this point even more extremely than Tibet, but it gets much less press attention than Tibet, right? They don't have a kind of celebrity spokesperson like the Dalai Lama. So it's been noticed much less by the international community. And like the Soviets in Central Asia, the Chinese also allow sort of superficial cultural displays, you know, use of the Turkic language and dance, music, things like this, kind of non-threatening cultural displays, but never organization or political dissent, right? That's where they cut it off. So there's a sort of, you might say, a kind of fake, you know, Xinjiang autonomy for the tourists. And this suppression in Xinjiang has really ramped up recently, especially since 2013. So 2013 is the year when China announced the Belt and Road Project, which was originally called One Belt, One Road, which was this massive program by China to sponsor and lend money to various countries to build up infrastructure and to try to recreate a new sort of east-west silk road for the 21st century, where trade and travel would be funneled through Asia and even Europe and Africa into China. And it's mostly infrastructure projects over land, rails, highways, airports, and also seaports along the sea, connecting all the way to East Africa and Eastern Europe. And it would run particularly through Central Asia, through that, again, that belt of flat land connecting China to the rest of Eurasia. And it was announced... The first announcement of this project was in Kazakhstan, right? Xi Jinping, the leader of China, went and announced it in Kazakhstan, right? So obviously evoking this Silk Road history. Now, this would be accomplished largely by sending Chinese plans and engineers to other countries and loans, okay, by lending money to various other countries to fund these projects. And this is, you could say, a win-win for China, if the loans get repaid, they get their money back. Or if not, you get foreign countries that are permanently indebted to China and will sort of presumably fall under their sphere of influence. So the Belt and Road Project is a very ambitious plan, and it really raises the stakes for China in controlling Xinjiang, right? They cannot allow resistance or opposition to these projects in Xinjiang, which is this critical connecting link from China and Mongolia westward through Asia. 
And you may have heard there have been recent reports just within the last year of massive labor and re-education camps in which uh, people, particularly people of the Uyghur ethnicity, which is the largest sort of Turco-Mongolic group uh, in Xinjiang, where Uyghur people are sent to forced labor and re-education camps to correct so-called extremist thoughts. Okay, and extremist thoughts can be, you know, anything critical of the Chinese government. And it also can include, it seems, very subtle resistance to the way Xinjiang is controlled. And for example, one woman was interviewed who was sent to a re-education camp because she didn't want her daughter to participate in a pageant of Uyghur Central Asian music and dance. Right? And presumably she sort of felt that this was a kind of almost mocking display of like Uyghur culture for, you know, for amusement or for tourism. Uh, while Xinjiang was not allowed actual political self-government. So just for trying to stop her daughter from participating, she was accused of extremist thoughts and sent to this camp. So to close, you know, Xinjiang, I think, in many ways may be emblematic of the crises that a lot of Central Asian people are in, of being torn between different forces, you know, whether that includes a totalitarian single-party state or not. Uh, And so I'll close by looking at a conversation that was described by the British journalist Colin Thubrin, where in the early 2000s, Colin Thubrin traveled from China through Central Asia to Iran, sort of roughly tracing the old Silk Road. And while he was traveling, luckily for us, he was detained and quarantined in a small remote camp in Xinjiang because of concerns about SARS, right? So they they were afraid that he might carry the SARS pathogen westward. So he was detained and quarantined for several weeks. And while he was there, he spoke with a young Uyghur man who came from a peasant background and had been able to enroll in the university at Urumqi, the main central city in Xinjiang. He recounted this conversation with this young man that he called Dolkon. And the young man reportedly said, quote, it's useless hating the Chinese, I know, or blaming them for SARS. But their policies are hateful. It's socialism, they say. It's socialism. But there's no socialism here. Officials just do what they like. And somehow the system goes on. Thubrin then asks if many people in the region believe in this Chinese socialist ideology. And the young man says, quote, I don't know, maybe a few, but most of the Uyghur party members are secret Muslims. You pray in the home and nobody knows. They keep Qurans hidden. And when they die and are safely out of reach, they are buried in the Muslim way with a mullah officiating. Before my father died, he was not a practicing Muslim at all. But as he declined, he asked the village mullah for instruction, and he was buried in the Islamic faith. The young man then goes on to explain that his father had died of lung cancer, and Thubrin remarks that the young man, despite that, is smoking cigarettes. And the young man says, quote, Well, youths in my village do. Alcohol, too. Yeah, I know it's not Islamic, but we all do it. If you don't, you're not really a man. 
Older people are better Muslims. You should see our mosques on Fridays. But the young are drifting away. They see TV in the villages all the time. And the internet has changed them. It's in the towns, and villagers come back with its knowledge. People like me, I suppose. So it is seeping through, and they want to get out. They want a modern culture. The young man then says that he wants to travel abroad and to enjoy Western freedoms. And Thubrin finally asks him, do you go to mosque? And he says, yes, it is important. So I think that this conversation really shows a piece of a society that's in deep conflict really with itself, not just with a foreign government, but with itself, torn among different forces. You know, on the one hand, the official communist ideology, which everyone has to conform to and which maybe some people do believe in, and then traditional norms, mainly connected to Islam and the mosque, right? And on the one hand, this is a sort of clinging to old traditions, but also at the same time, it's clearly a way of expressing one's independence from Chinese control, right? And, and of adhering to an identity in defiance of the Chinese government. But then at the same time, sort of while there's, you could say, this Islamic subculture underneath the official Chinese culture, there's below that, there is now bubbling up a Western international individualism and consumerism, right? Through looking at the internet, through drinking alcohol and smoking tobacco, and through aspiring to, to travel and to be modern and Western, right? So you could see this as a lo- like a lot of places in the world, right, where, where there is modernity, in this case in two different forms, right, new modern ways of life, whether it's Chinese communist or Western, contending with this desire to cling to tradition. And sometimes the very same people having this sort of ambivalence and self-reproach about who they are and how they should live, right? Like this young man saying, yes, I know it's not Islamic, but we all do it. If you don't, you're not really a man, right? So this is, I would say, uh, it's a complicated, ambivalent society. And this is a situation that can be dangerous, right? Where people can turn to extremism or or drastic action to kind of lash out and try to resolve these conflicting impulses and push and pull, right? Uh, But, you know, possibly it's one that that the Uyghur people and other Central Asian people will be able to navigate in one way or another. We'll have to see. So thank you so much for listening. This has been a long journey through Central Asia, and I hope to turn soon to other topics I've been reading and thinking about, such as the U.S. Constitution, which is more in my field, and also Shakespeare. Uh, so if you want to hear more, uh, you know, tell me what you're interested in. And to keep the lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. The link is in the description. Thank you. Thank you.